0: This is Fine, Episode 1.8, Any Organized Party.
1: Hi, I'm Jeremy. And I'm Jerry. And today we have a special guest with us, Freddie DeBoer. Freddie, do you want to introduce yourself to our fans?
2: Oh, hi, I'm Freddie DeBoer. I am an academic, and I have been a writer uh, at times, and um, I do some activism as well.
1: So Jerry and I thought today we'd talk about organizing into the 2018 election and how the left-liberal split might affect that organization and what basically the sort of best paths or optimal paths for people to organize along are. And we thought that Freddie would be a perfect guest here because I think that, you know, as you know, I'm somewhat of a liberal and Jerry's somewhat of a social Democrat. I think Freddie is an inch to Jerry's left. And I think this will be a productive discussion. Maybe the sort of first question is like, does it make sense for liberals and the left to try and accommodate themselves within the Democratic Party? Like Is the Democratic Party a structure that can uh, accommodate the desires of both of those groups of people as they try and take back the House and fight back against Republican control of basically all branches of government?
2: <laughs> I, I, this is a question that I, I try to stay like committedly agnostic on. I, I don't think that it is in the strategic interest of anyone to sort of take a, a harsh binary position on this. That is this, you know, the scylla and the shrub of left organizing, right, Mm -hmm. which is the irrelevancy of not working within any kind of an organization or the being co-opted by the Democratic Party. And unfortunately, it's hard to avoid either. Right. Like either you end up in some Green Party office without any access to anyone that has like an ability to affect actual material change or you know you start out a lefty and the next thing you know you're an intern at uh, cory booker's office right (laughs) but i think that still you know you can't kind of just make a, a one declarative like break from a democratic party the fact of the matter is the democratic party is one of the two institutions that is structurally allowed to have meaningful national political party power in this uh, in this country and you need to be able to use that structure when it's convenient it is pragmatically possible to affect some change and there are going to be some races and some in- sort of moments when that's going to be useful but you also have to be open and honest with yourself about the fact that it really appears that if there was any time when the democratic party was subject to more of a sort of left wing capture uh, I don't, you know, I don't know when that could possibly be. Right. I, I mean, right now, we've just seen institutional Democrats fail at an unprecedented scale, losing over a thousand legislative seats in, since 2010. Just total decimation at the state level, terrible losses at the congressional level, and now a contested but real, you know, presidential election loss. So you would think they would be trying new things. You have an insurgent movement within the party that's young. It's organized. It showed an incredible ability to fundraise from small donors. And the guy who led it, another big poll just came out showing that he's the most popular politician in the United States by far. And still, the institutions of the Democratic Party are totally antagonistic to this movement. Uh, and things like the DNC chair uh, race, which is it's true a symbolic... Uh, sort of position, which is precisely why they should have just thrown the Sanders Democrats a bone yeah. and, and let them have it. And even that, like that symbolic victory, they weren't allowed, sort of going to allow them to have it. And I was I was really
1: surprised by that, actually, because, you know, again, as someone who tends towards the more liberal side of the party, I was like, Ellison should just be the chair. Let's just have it. And Chuck Schumer, of all people, was like, yeah, Ellison should just be chair. Sort of one of the things that confused me about that was how much must the Obama and Clinton people... Hate Sanders mm-hmm. not to let, as, as you know, like Ellison take basically a totally symbolic office.
2: I mean, I, I think Obama has proven to be pretty petty uh, in his in his post uh, presidential months that we've had since then. I mean, uh, you know, by all accounts he was the one who pressed Tom Perez into doing this. I mean, that's maybe one of the most bitter things about it is that Perez was not motivated to take this position. Obama sort of drafted him into service. And I think that Obama ran on hope and change. Uh, He ran with an activist class as his initial backers. Despite what some people said, he did run on what was more of a left-wing kind of a message. I mean, you know, people now like to say that that was sort of, uh, a left wing fantasy but he you can go back and listen to his speeches and stuff i mean that was he was he was signaling to the left of the party uh and his legacy is what it is right which is um you know on the verge of being totally dismantled and was limited even in the best of times and I think that the Sanders movement is threatening to his perception of his own legacy but the question is is like if these are not the- qu- the conditions under which a left wing movement for the party are possible. Like, what would that look like? Right. How how bad would it have to get, and how much of a youth movement would you have to be able to demonstrate before they would sort of start to loosen their grasp a little bit? You know. I would
0: also like to add that, uh, in my in my personal experience, this is purely anecdotal. It's not necessarily even just a youth movement. So I'm like a pretty regular attendee of uh, my local Democratic Party club meetings, and there are a lot of people who are you know quite a bit older than me who are you know, as dissatisfied with the current situation as, uh, you know, as the youth is. So I, I do think that the conditions are ripe. And I actually, you know, I would endorse a lot of what Freddie was saying, which is that, like, I tend to sort of be a both and person. I don't think any particular individual necessarily has to do one or the other thing. But I think that all paths that potentially offer an opportunity to move politics to the left should be explored. And if, you know, if part of that involves internal takeover of the of the Democratic Party, that's great. And if some of that involves organizing outside of the party, that's also great. And people should, I think, decide for themselves, you know, where they think they might make the best impact. I, I think that the yeah the the categorical division into like this is the right path, this is the wrong path. I don't see that as being particularly pro- particularly productive. I think it just engenders infighting
1: that doesn't lead anywhere. So can, can we talk about some wrong paths though? Because I actually think there are a couple. Yeah, yeah. I, I am actually fine with primarying. There was a 538 piece basically saying we shouldn't primary Mansion. I think that's wrong. I actually think that like one of the successes of the Tea Party. Yeah, they lost a few races they should have won, but was driving their ideological positions all over, even in places like Nevada, you know, I mean, Nevada's a swing state, Dean Heller is far to the right, you can look at lots of swing states. In fact, Rob Portman's sort of an anachronism, like, but by all means, generally, in swing states, Republican senators are actually quite conservative, especially if they were elected within that wave. So I do think we should primary, I would say a wrong course of action would be losing a primary. And then unless the candidate is truly objectionable, sitting out and going third party, I mean, I, I think that there are now, maybe actually Manchin's a good case where' like, hey, you know what you <laughs> might as well vote green but but there I think in most cases that's destructive behavior and and one of the things that worries me was there was a study of youth voter or sorry of youth political activists importantly, and they deemed voting as one of the least important ways they could be active in the political process and that was really frustrating because it's like you know one of the one of the main things you're doing on these drives if you're registering people to vote or doing other things is is in fact to get out the vote i mean if Uh, we had 100% turnout or even 70% turnout or 60% turnout as opposed to what we have in this country, we'd have a far further left politics.
2: But, I mean, look at at their lives, right? I mean, look look at what has happened in this country during their adult lifetime. It's not hard to understand why they would think that, right? I mean, if you're someone like, you know, again, like suppose you were young enough where – The 2008 Barack Obama campaign is like your sort of political awakening, as it were, for a lot of young people. You have a guy who is a transformational figure in many ways, no matter how you slice it, talking about hope and change, talking again and again about making an explicit break from the politics of the past. It's 2017, and Guantanamo Bay is still open. Yeah. right. That was an explicit campaign promise he made over and over again. He made an explicit campaign promise never to crack down on federal drug re- legislation like medical marijuana, and, and they did in his first few years, although they got better about that. You know, we have... A healthcare bill, which I've said over and over again, is better than the alternative. But, you know, if that is, you know, it has been very difficult to defend. It's proven to be very expensive for people like the young people who are coming up because its entire purpose is to shift the cost burden onto them. And it looks like something that's going to be going away fairly soon. And we continue to get into a series of ter- disastrous foreign entanglements. You know, I mean, we have expanded the theater of operations in the war on terror during the Obama administration. And so if you are a young person, you know, you can be forgiven, I think, for looking at the situation and saying, you know, voting does not seem to be producing a lot of tangible change for me.
0: You know, I I think voting is important, but I think that if, if I were to draw a diagram, I guess, of how I think sort of political change happens, I don't think that voting in and of itself is like what drives the change like when you by the time you're getting people out to the polls what you're really trying to do is you're all you're trying to ratify a change that has already taken place so yes voting is important and that's how you keep score i guess but that's not sort of like you know to to use a very bad football analogy right like scoring a touchdown gets you points but typically getting to like the you know the 10 yard mark is how you actually get to score touchdowns, right? Which does not necessarily mean that you will, but typically you have to create the conditions that will in turn lead to a ratification of your position at the voting booth.
1: I guess if this were the 1970s and we had control of state legislatures, but state legislatures on many different issues that were important to young people, the left, people of color, et cetera, were not receptive <clears throat> to them, I would completely agree. I would say, hey, look, you know, voting in this case is not as much as important as the, uh, organized efforts to put pressure on legislators. But right now it's not like legislators who are at all sympathetic to, I mean, you know, because of, as, as Freddie has noted, the sort of slaughter of the democratic party, especially in state legislators, you know, they're trying to figure out which version of the ALEC bill markup to give more money to oligarchs. You know, it's not like the getting to the 10 yard line on uh, environmental action is going to help unless you actually can vote them out. I, I guess what I guess what I'm saying is
0: like it's not that voting is not important. It's just that in order for people to get to the point where they're going to the polls to cast their vote for whatever it is that you're advocating for, like you have to build the system that enables that to happen. It's not like you can't just tell people like go vote. Because I don't think that's a good motivator. Sure. And it feels empty in and of itself. But if you're telling them to, if you're building an organization that gets people to out to vote for something specific and saying like, hey, this is how you can benefit from it. Now you're talking about like having an actual support system in place. To render that voting meaningful. Like so, it so, so I, okay,
1: so I agree with that. So how do you build Nevadas, basically? Right? Like Nevada is an interesting case where unionization declines by less. I think actually Freddie wrote about this. I mean, I think one of the the fascinating things about this campaign was it clearly showed the failure of I think not a politics that takes issues of both identity and economic policy seriously, but the failure of just operating on a identarian sort of exhortation to vote. I, I agree with what Jerry was just saying. Like you need some organization. But how do you how do you do that? I mean, Nevada seems to me to be a very special case where a lot of the voters are 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 in these Two urban counties, right? Unionizations decline less than in other places in the country, and there are a lot of sort of salient cross-pressured issues where a casino worker is also someone who has an undocumented family member, is also a union member, is also like like I think those are, those are a really wonderful sort of condition for that type of organizing. C- can we replicate that in Ohio?
2: Like, well, the thing is, is I think that there's another factor of Nevada politics, which you didn't mention, which is it doesn't have a very like sort of long pedigreed. And particularly deeply set machine politics, the way that we have here in New York, the way there is in Ohio, the way there Wait certainly sure. is in, in uh, California. I would 100% agree with the idea that, like, what we should be saying to the young people is voting on the state level actually matters the most because there's this very weird dynamic in liberal and left politics where liberals just don't come out for a state and local elections. I mean, one of the things you have to hand to conservatives is you know, they take over school boards every time there's some controversy about some, you know, reactionary school board doing something ridiculous with textbooks or whatever, my first instinct is always, why don't we do that, right? Conservatives have always known, like, you start with the local planning and zoning commission, and then, you know, you move your way up. The problem is, is... They're better communists than we are. Right, yeah, exactly. Well, it's the, it's you know, it's the permanent sort of sad irony, which is that the sort of individualist conservatives are great at working in concert and the, you know, communitarian leftists are terrible at it. The problem with saying, you know, focus on state politics because they matter a lot and that's where you can probably make the biggest impact is that we have these machines in place, right? So, you you know, we have, we're in New York. Conditions should be as ripe to be as blue as possible. Mm -hmm. But you have things like the IDC, the Independent Democratic Caucus, Crown Heights, the representative for Crown Heights, caucuses with Republicans, which is insane, right? But the problem is, is, like, everything in Albany is so machined in order to make it impossible to oppose people that it just sucks out all of the energy, right? Like, you can try to, like, primary people in California state politics. Good luck, right? And that's the thing. Like, the real dilemma right now is that if we want to effect, I think that if you want to effect change through voting, then it makes more sense to target state parties than it does national parties. But the states are where these, for Democrat or Republican, you have these terrible machines in place that prevent any kind of new blood from coming in, and they make it impossible to create real change. I mean, if you look at my home state, I'm from Connecticut, okay? Connecticut is about as blue as it gets. You have a, a Democratic governor and a Democratic Congress, uh, state legislature, excuse me, And we're in the midst of slashing education funds, slashing funds for the homeless, slashing funds for mental health care, and passing massive corporate and rich tax cuts. And so if you try to tell a young person, like, hey, get excited about the Connecticut Democrats, where you're already winning um, in terms of Team Blue, and yet they're doing what Republicans do, it's really hard to get people to want to try to change that. And it's hard to see where positive change could come from a lot of people will just say, "What's the point of working with the Democrats if they if they govern like Republicans?" And again, like yeah. the obverse is unthinkable. It's you can't imagine a r- Republican state with a Republican governor and a Republican legislature raising, raising taxes, taxes on the on the wealthy and corporations in order to to uh, implement more sort of social services and a bigger social safety net. That. And that's like the fundamental con- condition of American politics is. Democrats are forever governing like Republicans, and Republicans never govern like Democrats.
0: So one thing that I wanted to make a point about, which uh, refers to an episode that, uh, episode 1.6, where I talked to my friend Darcy, who's an activist in uh, southwestern Pennsylvania, specifically Indiana County. One of the things that she talked about at some length was the, first of all, that there are a lot of opportunities to make differences at the local level. She has this friend who organized essentially a, what, what effectively was a takeover of the city council, like a progressive takeover of the city council for really not very much money. I mean, it was a couple thousand dollars to just, and it was mostly directed towards like printing flyers and stuff like that, getting the word out in, in the local community. And that council is still intact actually. So that's, uh, that's quite an impressive achievement in an area where you wouldn't think that that was going to be a possibility. And one of the other things that she said was that the local organizations actually do a lot of this work are extremely starved for resources. And this is something that uh, I think is really a problem of leadership at the top of the party where the money does not get down to the organizations and the people who are actually able to get out there and talk and, and, you know, campaign to talk to people, knock on doors, collect the actual data that you need to be like, oh, hey, you should go. uh, This is a person who can be motivated to go out and vote. All that stuff, like, right, that requires people to go and do, and those people need resources, even if it's just to supplement, like, even if they're volunteering their time, right. you know, they'll need resources, just like print flyers or something, so they're not spending their own money, and right now, they're not getting any help. Well, so, I
1: mean, to attack Obama again, problem. That, that comes directly from, right, I mean, there was a great article about what Obama did with the OFA list mm-hmm. right after his election in 2008, and it was basically like, destroy it which was insane because you had, I mean, this goes to, to Verdi's point again about that youth movement. I, I might disagree in that while well, Obama did promise on Guantanamo, I think there were always sort of some hints that he'd be a little right on foreign policy. But but that aside, he definitely left was the left on domestic policy. He actually opposed the mandate from the left in the healthcare debate. But to, he threw away that list, and the guy's a community organizer. And then the Clinton campaign did it again with not not sort of funneling any money to the state parties. In fact, they had a mechanism that um, took money from the state parties, if you donated enough. I, I don't know if you guys, everyone knows about this, but it's called the Hillary Victory Fund. And, yeah, I heard, I read about this. Right. So one of the things was, you, either a statutory maximum, you could donate to a presidential campaign, but you can donate to the state parties, and the state parties can donate back to them. And they set it up to be like an automatic pass-through, which is, at the time, seemed like a, well, the Republicans are kind of doing a similar thing, and now, now it seems kind of nuts. But I do think like part of that is an intentional um, move by the Democratic Party to starve these state parties. I guess the question is again, how do you take over the state parties? Historically, it did happen, right? In the 70s, I mean, Matt Stoller is very angry about it, but a bunch of anti war liberals who were maybe economically less progressive, but were certainly socially more progressive than the sort of hard hat um, pro war uh, Dems they kicked out. So late 60s, early 70s, they did so. They took over the party. I'm not saying we need a Vietnam War again. <laughs> like, mm. for God's sakes, we have Trump. Like, if not now, when? But so- like, what, what can we do to have the, the next generation of Pete Starks? So
0: uh, my my response to that would be that I think that the conditions that enable that to happen are probably not replicable. Uh, I think that number one, you know, Vietnam was obviously a this this really crucial fracture point uh, within the Democratic Party itself. But also, I think that the way that the those Democrats managed to take over the party was by sort of convincing the other sort of elites that, who were not necessarily like. Party leaders, but were sort of uh, party adjacent. They were the funders mostly. That sort of this neoliberal turn was in some way, you know, it was in their best interest. And I don't think that that is, that move is replicable. So to me, actually, it, it makes more sense to sort of study how Republicans have done this. Uh, you know, they've transformed what was a fairly orthodox business party at the time of McKinley into this kind of really hard right reactionary, uh, force, um, that we see today. Right. And they did this over the course of a century, uh, you know, which is, which is quite a long time, but you know, they really built up the infrastructure and the intellectual firepower, such as it was to make that happen. Uh, To me, it seems that if you want to organize, you know, that kind of level of party takeover, like you really have to make the people at the top fear for their jobs um, right now, the Republican legislators fear their base and the Democratic uh, legislators do not fear theirs. And that's a problem, right? You if, you, if you have no
2: incentive to do as your base wants, like, why would you not just take the money? I mean, the thing is, is, you know, like, I mean, I think that's exactly right. And the, the Democrats fundamentally are a top down party and the Republicans fundamentally are a bottom up party. The Republicans are... Uh, fucking insane also uh, so it's not like you know it's a good indication that like grassroots doesn't always mean good but uh, the bottom line is like like I said before Republicans build from the from the ground up you know whatever else you want to say about the conservative movement it is always understood that you mobilize locally first and you build up these institutions and you build and you build and you build the the default picture of like, like what a of what a, a Democrat is right now is this kind of bloodless technocratic manager you mentioned the fact that um, the Hillary Clinton campaign made it so that funds weren't reaching the state parties for local elections or state, lo- state elections. But it wasn't just about funding. It was about completely ignoring and freezing out activists on the ground in these places. The mayor of Madison, Wisconsin, was apoplectic about Wisconsin going to Trump. And he said, I was warning t- them for months. But they literally had an algorithm that told them not to campaign there. Right, uh, People, activists in uh, Michigan said, you need to be out here. Our people need you. Where, where the hell are you? And they said, nope, sorry. Our boys in the back room are super smart and they know what they're talking about. It seemed to work so well for Obama. So they didn't deploy any resources there. A fundamental breakdown there. The problem that the Democrats have to face, which they haven't yet, is they're not as smart as they think they are. And they've been trusting this wonk class, this Ezra Klein class, to sort of, you know, advise the party. It turns out that they suck at it because they don't know anything about most people in the United States. If the Democrats are going to get better, they have to be willing to accept the fact that, you know— They don't. no no politician wants to be answerable to the base in that way, right? I mean, the Trump victory is the final sort of nail in the coffin of the party decides on the Republican side, right? Like, the boys in the back room of the Republican Party were finally totally rejected when it came to Trump, and it was like, that was a long-brewing civil war that went on for a long time. Right, a
1: stake through Mitt Romney's heart.
2: Right, exactly. And so, it's understandable why people, like, you know, it's not like Republicans necessarily want to be afraid of their base, but, uh, there can't possibly be a a counterweight, a countermeasure to Republican insanity unless you have an activist base in the Democratic Party that actually was able to control power. The problem is, is, you know, the iron law of institutions, which I'm sure both of you have heard before, but uh, some of your viewers may you not. Made which an is,
1: appearance in episode 1.4. Ah, uh-huh,
2: yeah. So for, the, for those listening at home, uh, a guy named John Schwartz, who now writes for The Intercept, I think, coined this term, the iron law of institutions, which is in any institution, people would rather protect their own standing within that institution than the health of the institution itself. And that that just perfectly describes the Democratic Party right now, where it would be far better for the Democratic Party, right, for Clinton and Obama loyalists to take a back seat, let Keith Ellison have the symbolic, symbolic seat, and begin to sort of draft off this energy and take the people who follow, again, the most popular politician in America right now. But that would diminish their standing within the party. And it would also amount to a rejection of the wonk worldview, of the dispassionate, smarter than everyone, has the right ideas uh, worldview, which is just the institutional culture of the the Democratic Party right now. And it's going to take a long time and a lot of hard work by people on the grassroots level. And even then, it might not change. I'm not sure what is going to change it.
1: Yeah, I mean, I think one of the dangers – and actually, uh, it's funny – Marshall Steinbaum had an article for Jacobin and I think roughly alluding to this, but one one of the dangers of this is that Europe writ large has a lot of social democratic parties who acceded to neoliberalism in the form of really, really strict financial repression through the Euro which has damaged those parties very significantly. And the Democratic Party avoided the worst of the austerity after 2008. But there's a very good argument that Obama certainly ran further left than the later actions, especially sort of, you know, Geithner banks over homeowners, right, is a a very easy one. And it's not just, I think, this institutional idea of their own power, but about, you know, we're a two-party system. The only thing that can achieve the change is the Democratic Party, I worry very much about the Democratic Party being sort of poisoned. And I say this as someone who, again, is a little more on the liberal side of the spectrum, but who would favor a lot more left economic policy than actually we got under Obama. Like, one of the things that would be horrifying is if we hit some sort of end case where – the Democratic Party was was so poisoned, I think, by its associations that, that there just really was no vehicle for the left. So I think figuring this out in sort of a reasonable time frame is important, because I don't think you can persist in this situation where people don't trust the party or don't trust its leaders and the leaders want to stay on um, and, and there's no practical change. Because I, I do think then you'll see people moving out towards um, places in the far right, for example, that might be accommodating on, on certain economic issues and, and et cetera.
0: One thing I would also add is that I think that there's a misunderstanding, I think, in many quarters um, about how sort of like party systems in American politics actually work. And specifically, how parties, like as institutions, actually function, because like the Democratic Party is sort of—it's uh, a very nebulous kind of organization, uh, just like the Republican Party is too, in the sense that you know you have these people at the top, but they kind of like, yeah, they you know they hold institutional power, but it's not like they are—it's not like the mechanisms for replacing those people don't exist, right? I mean, we know.
1: But they're anti democratic. Four hundred people voted for Perez, right? It's not like right, but
0: yeah, every yeah. But Democrat what? But what I, no, no. I understand that. But what I'm saying is that the Democratic Party is really a constellation of many, many different organizations that all sort of like loosely carry the Democratic Party brand. And the reason why they do this is because, as you say, it is a two party system, and so you sort of affiliate yourself with the people who are most likely to deliver what you. Think you know what you think is in your interest, but in reality, like there's not a an institutional tie that binds like people in who are you know Democrats in uh, I don't know big cities who are with people who are like Democrats in rural areas. It's just that like they have a commonality, they have some commonality of interest, and so they all kind of like gather under this umbrella. And I think the point uh, that I'm that I'm trying to make with this is that. Yes, it is difficult to get the leadership to pay attention. But the reason it's difficult to get the leadership to pay attention is because like what you're really trying to do is you have all these like you have these nebulous groups and they're not really super well coordinated with each other. Uh, And maybe that's part of that is by design, part of that sort of by accident. But in reality, like if you could get a cross cutting movement, right, of people who like were saying, OK, we want to see change in the party. And we're going to elect people to whatever the local party positions uh, who are going to make that happen Like then all of a sudden you can get some kind of movement But as long as it's just like a pocket of people here a pocket of people there like machine politics in New York Who knows what in Nevada? It, it does not take on the form of a coherent movement uh,
1: And sure. that's part of what, what you have to do I mean, but the way the right did that so the how did the right do it right um, direct mail um, Direct mails, Fox one, yes. taking over the media, um, the Christian coalition, uh, you conservative know, conservative peop- radio, conservative radio, drive time radio. Like there was an organized messaging unit. It wasn't just that the people who wanted to make sure that dinosaurs were nowhere in the Texas school uh, curriculum talked to the people in Louisiana, although they did. It was that there was an organizing force around them telling them all to run for school board and, and take out evolution.
0: For sure. I guess what I'm saying is that there. I, I think there should be a venue for doing something like that within, you know, on the left. But that venue should be like, OK, we're going to bring all these people together and we're actually going to take their concerns seriously. It's not going to be like this weird thing where the people who really know how how the machine politics works are going to end up like screwing everybody because they know like the secret clause to on which to turn the vote which by the way is like that's not a fictitious scenario that's a scenario that's actually outlined in rick perlstein's book before the storm about the 1964 uh, republican convention where there was like all this backroom maneuvering that was trying to i'm sorry i think i meant the 1960 convention the one that didn't nominate goldwater mm-hmm. uh there was all this backroom maneuvering of, like trying to you know get goldwater nominated and like uh basically what happened was that the people who really understood this like parliamentary procedure that the Republican convention ran on ended up winning like they were the ones who figured out how to get Nixon to the nomination and you know while that may be very satisfying in the moment i think that's really dangerous when you do things like that one of the best things you can do, I, this, is, this is obviously sort of my personal uh, bias speaking here, but I think one of the best things you can do is you can bring these people together, you can take their concerns seriously, and you can have like straight up votes, not like this weird backroom maneuvering, uh, but just like vote on a platform, right? And see what does the party stand for? that that's what i would advocate because right but
2: the problem is, is again like that that violates the fundamental institutional culture of the democratic party right now which is that experts that's true experts know everything you can't just leave things up to the people right you have to have a class of experts who dictate what the smart policy is at all times and why why is that the institutional culture because the democratic party fundamentally is not a political party as sort of conventionally understood so the guy jacob Bacharak, who's a friend of mine he has a new novel and just out. You should check it out. But uh, he's uh, also got a great Twitter feed. And on his Twitter feed, he had a thread once where he said, "Look, people talk about how the Republican Party is not normal, but actually they are normal in the sense that they work the way that a political party is supposed to work, which is to relentlessly pursue power and to do it according to the dictates of what their base wants." Cf the title of the episode. Yeah, and it is, and it is the the, the Democrats who are the weird party because. As he says, the Democrat is this. Democrats are this weird constellation of this sort of consultancy class that has happened to have been aligned with traditional left wing, in at least nominally left wing kind of interests and, and identity interests, and unfortunately, like again, like the default Democrat is someone who wants to work at a think tank someday, right? Or at least the default member of the Democrat leadership, right? The default Democrat is someone who has a JD and has like was uh, worked for a non-profit for a little while and then goes into a consultancy right? And is someone who is kind of like a self-defined expert class and the Democrats need a grassroots roots takeover but everything has become bent towards this idea that like what you really need is you want a Harvard International Relations BA uh, who lives in Echo Park, Los Angeles, or Park Slope, New York, and to be able to sort of you know look at their actuarial tables and say, here's the sound policy. And under those conditions, the thing that you absolutely must prevent is a kind of real grassroots sort of takeover of the party they've very effectively cornered off the the kind of mechanisms that they might use to be able to allow the grassroots to take the party over again.
1: I mean, I think one of the difficult things you allude to, though, is the fact that so many Democrats are in urban centers that have machine politics, where, um, for a variety of reasons, I mean, look at how terrible Charlie Ringhell was. And there were, you know, candidate after candidate, um, Latino candidates, New York candidates, African American candidates tried to take out Charlie Rangel in a district where, you know, he was always going to, the Democrat was always going to win. And yes, he had institutional support, but I think, I think it's also just the the machine and the machine is very, very tough to fight in New York. Um, you mentioned earlier uh, the representative for Crown Heights and our, in our who I believe is Simca Felder, right? Mm. And, um, you know, right. He caucuses with the Republicans. Now that's insane that, that he's able to win in that area, I don't know which is a better use of funds, actually. First of all, I think you need funds. And then it's like, do you send funds out to um, areas like where Darcy's working? where there are fewer Democrats, but you might be able to sort of build up progressive state parties out in places like Western Pennsylvania, or do you try and take over the machine in the large cities, which requires a lot more funds, but on the other hand, contrary, where there are a lot more Democrats. Because if you're going to have this sort of organized cross-party structure, like as, as Jerry described, or as Freddie noted, like turning the party into a real party, I'm not saying you have to pick, but I, I'm saying like, I don't see anyone strategizing on this. You know, Indivisibles is great because I'm all for protesting Trump, but I I am a little concerned as we move towards 18. Like I I don't see anything really different happening in terms of the ways that people are thinking about running candidates.
0: Yeah. I I mean, I, I don't know how to pick between those two things. I think that, um, it's probably a false choice. I mean, it's yeah. I mean, I, I think you should, you should try and do both. And I think you have to make that call based not so much on like, how many people can you turn around today but sort of what that how that bodes for the future of the party so if you have a chance to build a party where none exists i think the payoff the marginal payoff for that is higher than flipping one seat um even though the person who currently occupies that seat is bad but that you know that's sort of open to debate that's a strategic question and i think that you know Surely somebody else could make a a different and compelling case for uh, the opposite uh, position. I don't know. But I think that that is the kind of question that like when you have like an actual, you know, not to uh, make it too Soviet, but party Congress, right, that gets together and sort of like has that debate out in the open and says like, okay, what are we going to do? How is how are we going to make this? How are we going to make this work?
1: So maybe the Bernie movement should be doing that. I mean, look, I wasn't a maybe. part of the movement, so, you know, I mean, I obviously played for the other team. But I mean, I do I do wonder like in terms of organizing, like it seems very fundamental to me. I have a couple worries. One is like Elizabeth Warren, who I think should be the sort of second figure in in the Sanders movement is like 30 points less popular nationally than Bernie Sanders. And I don't know what's going on there. That can't possibly all just be misogyny. She seems like equally credible on all of those issues so it's confusing to me and and so that that's my that is one worry that i have about things like the sanders ball but another worry is we have is going into 18 is really like are people just depending on trump on popularity because you know what he's He's unpopular, but he's not that unpopular. He's, like, about as unpopular as Obama was, seriously, this is true, in the summer of 2012. That is how unpopular Trump is nationally. That's not, like, we can't win the House on that.
2: And he's also, uh, in the handful of polls that I've seen, more popular than the Democratic Party as an institution and by generic Democratic challenger right now.
1: Right. So it's like, this is if this is where we're going into 18, just hoping like, well, Trump is so terrible. Everyone I know, like Pauline kale style, like everyone I know in Sunset Park hates him. Like we're it's we're going to lose again. And I will I will I will do literally anything to have that not happen.
0: I think that there is a hope I'm, I'm sure in, in among many uh, people in the Democratic leadership class that sort of this the, the that secular wave that kind of Uh, you know people think governs elections will just oscillate back towards them and everything will be okay again i don't think that's a good idea. i don't think it's a good idea to pin your hopes on that Uh, no i mean the the
1: arc of history is the fucking worst
0: no no no, i mean i I, I don't even mean the arc of history i mean this this idea that like okay well you know uh the the incumbent party loses seats in the off years like okay well maybe that's true but like that. You know, you have to lose a lot of seats right now if you're the Republicans to turn over the House. Mm-hmm. Uh, the Senate map does not look good for Democrats. So yeah, like, I'm just saying you can't like, ho- you can't bank on those things. No, like, those
1: obviously. Just- yeah. Robbie Mook plus Hagel is basically what I'm saying. It's like a terrible, <laughs> terrible argument. Like we need to somehow banish that to a, a dustbin.
0: Yeah. I, I, uh, I also I also want to say something like this is, you know, something that we've we've talked about uh, on when when we had our episode on elites. But you know, I, I think expertise is really valuable, but it has to be genuine expertise. And I think that what we saw was that, uh, you know, people who were measuring all these things ended up measuring like things that, you know, that didn't end up corresponding to reality. And that's a real problem, right? I mean, you can fool yourself with numbers by you, you say you have all these metrics, and then the metrics don't produce what you think they, they're supposed to produce. And that what that means is that like, you the things that you, the information that you collected was wrong. And like you did it wrong. And the key point here is that if you're, if you are a self-professed expert on, you know, anything then you have to, you know, if you fuck up, you have to come clean. You have to say, okay, like we fucked up and we made the wrong calls and we're going to try and do better. We can, and one way that we can try and do better is to uh, talk to the people on the ground and collect more accurate information because that information is valuable. It is important and it does, Lend itself to like constructing the the correct strategy. It was just like you know you made a mistake and you should not make that mistake again. But there's
1: no incentive, right? I mean, the guys at Vox are all still there. I mean, which is you know I like them, but like they were wrong on everything. the The DLC leadership is basically all still. Debbie Wasserman Schultz has a congressional seat, like because there is right that expertise versus elite question is really important. But as Freddie noted, these people aren't even experts. It's not like we had the best political scientist, we like pulled them out and said, run the Democratic Party. That would be elitism of one sort. It was like a guy who had studied under them and then worked for a think tank for four years and then proclaimed himself like with a bad linear regression, like king of the world.
2: One one might say like, look, the the fundamental issue for Democrats is that their intellectual class, that's not the fundamental issue, but one of the fundamental issues is that their intellectual class controls everything in their world. It you know, we are we are moving towards a true like liberal monoculture. I mean I like I've, I've said for years like you know, I I for years denied that academia was a leftist indoctrination camp or that the liberal was the media was liberal, but it's really hard to <laughs> deny at this point that media is at least socially heavily liberal with some sort of, you know, sort of soft economic liberalism kind of worked in there the problem is is that that makes it very easy to sort of drink your own Kool-Aid right you know, I, I made the point that Hillary, you know, made an appearance on uh, Broad City, which was a really big deal among the kind of liberals, uh, you know, urban. Like, And look, I, am, I, am in a, an, I have a Ph.D., I live in Brooklyn, uh, I grew up in Connecticut, I am in every sense, you know, the kind of person that I'm critiquing now. But Hillary went on Broad City, and Twitter thought it was amazing, and the blogs thought it was amazing, and the kind of people who write for the New York Times thought it was amazing. And you check the ratings and that show has like less than 2 million regular viewers. Right. And so the problem is, is all 2 million of them have a fucking blog. Right. And one of the issues for the Democrats right now is that when they look out at the world, they're looking out at it through the filter of academia and media, which is overwhelmingly biased towards not even biased, forget biased is slanted towards the kind of people that they see themselves as. And, The more insane that right wing media goes, the more insane that Fox News is, Breitbart, whatever, the less incentive there is to look at it. So you're always looking out at the world and you're saying, yeah, how could we possibly lose? But the problem is, is um, the people who create our culture are just fundamentally removed from uh, the vast swath of the country. And it's really essential to say that... The media class, the urban, educated, affluent, upperly mobile media class, is as disconnected from a black iron worker in Milwaukee as they are from a soybean farmer in Indiana, right? So we always break this down into these really heavy binaries like, you know, urban means black and it means liberal or whatever. But, you know, no one was more devastated by deindustrialization than the black middle class, right? NAFTA hit, absolutely the hardest hit people from NAFTA were auto workers and other machinists in the Rust Belt who uh, who were black, because that was the heart of the American black middle class. If you look at the numbers from this election, Hillary suffered terribly because of lower turnout from the kind of people that brought us the Obama revolution. And so you, the Democrats have to ask themselves like, what did we give to them, right? What did we do for that laid-off iron worker in Flint, Michigan, who is black and who has been from a family that's voted Democrat their entire, you know, their entire lives? Well, unfortunately... Poisoned water. Poisoned water, right? right? We gave them poison water. We gave them teach a kid to code. We gave them um, a different kind of bootstraps rhetoric than the conservative bootstraps rhetoric. If you live on Twitter... And you got a degree; it's worth more, or at Pomona or at Northwestern, and you are plugged into you know Jezebel, and uh, you go to yoga, you know, and to a co-op. The idea of that laid-off iron worker, that black laid-off iron worker in Flint, Michigan, voting for Trump, was completely uh, unthinkable to you. And it's true because he didn't vote for Trump. But what the Democrats found out the hard way is they just had to stay home. Yeah. And if the Democrats are going to recover, we have to get past this super binary thinking that, like, you know, we can just sort of ascribe a racial identity uh, or a gender identity and say this these people are, are necessarily going to be on our side. I thought that organizing a woman's march, you know, was a great like sort of propaganda and organizing sort of thing. I don't mind that frame, but. The, the 2016 election should have destroyed the idea of, like, the woman's vote as, like, a coherent thing. 44% of women voted for Donald Trump. A majority white of, women, of right. white women voted for Donald Trump. And this is a country where 70% of consistent voters are still white, despite all the demographic change. And so... As long as you're sort of looking at it through the reductive lenses that our media likes to sort of self in a self congratulatory way sort of use to look at the world of course you're gonna think things are fine if you're if you're Robbie Mook and your base is here in Brooklyn and you are surrounded by people who came from the same kind of schools that you went to and you're suffused in this Hillary propaganda of course you were surprised and something has to happen fundamentally to the party to say look there's a whole different world out there and it's not just people who vote for Republicans. It's people who no longer bother to vote for Democrats because the Democrats aren't giving them anything.
0: I think the media culture is a pretty important point because, you know, you know, I, I enjoy Twitter, you know, I, but, uh, no, I look, I like Twitter. I like, uh, you know, there, there's something very funny about like watching kind of, bad people get owned on Twitter, but it's also like, I, I recognize that it's not like an effect of politics. Like it's just entertainment. I, I follow it because it, it makes me laugh a couple times a day. And then, uh, but it doesn't do anything. Right. And, um, at the same, at the same time, like, you know, you look at media and so and the news and sort of the range of topics that can be sort of, that can be openly debated, right. On any news network that you would care to say, and it, it is extremely restrictive. Like it's hard to get a viewpoint that, is, that falls outside of this sort of extremely narrow band of accepted, uh, you, you know, accepted opinions uh, onto primetime news. And that's a problem, right? I mean, it's the same problem that you face when you sort of artificially restrict, for example, like, you know, the the degree to which like actual party members have an influence over the direction of the party, uh, because when you artificially restrict that range of opinions, like you're not getting the full intellectual exercise that you should be getting from like an actual debate. And I think that the the question of, for example, American foreign policy is like a really good one because there are very few voices that you ever encounter in the mainstream media that like you know legitimately challenge, for example, like what we do abroad. Uh, it's just considered to be like not something that you do. And especially uh, most of the Democratic leadership seems to be quite content with that. Like they have decided that we're going to, you know, I don't know how much of that is just a cynical trade of like, we're just going to let the security services have what they want so that we can do stuff domestically. And how much of that is like true believers? I don't know. Whatever it is, it's um, you just can't get those like contrary opinions out into the public.
2: And that's a real problem. Like, I don't know. I don't know a good way around it. I mean, but. the thing is, if I go on Twitter right now, and in part this is because of my reputation, but if I go on Twitter right now and I say, you know, we we on the left, liberals on the left, need to be, you know, we need to open up uh, the range of accepted opinion and we need to have a, a broader, you know, sort of po- realm of possibility in terms of what you can say in order to, you know, uh, have a more robust conversation, immediately I will get a dozen people saying so you're saying you might consider eugenics to be true right like so you're saying we should give racists a seat at the table so you're saying transphobia should be you know uh, there's this immediate leap towards like the most extreme kind of manifestation of it.
1: When in, in fact, the funny thing is that the, the consequence probably actually Jerry's alluding to is like you never hear anyone from the BDS movement or even from J Street on MSNBC of all places. And I think probably the allegiance of not only most people on the left, but most Jews now who are under 40 is probably with, with those organizations. Mm-hmm. But right, I agree. Freddie, were you to go on Twitter and say it, the Parade of Horribles would come out, despite the fact of, of as far as I've seen from from all of your writing and published things, you you are as far left socially as you possibly could be. I,
2: I'm a I'm a completely conventional sort of yeah. left liberal person in, in like in terms of like race, gender, like sexual orientation, disability, all that stuff. I'm just completely boring. But that's the, like that's the problem, right? Like yeah. we have such an incredibly narrow sort of set of ways in which you're allowed to even express those sort of mainstream opinions that it has terribly shrunk the realm of the possible you know one of the problems with liberalism right now is it's forever substituting normative questions for like practical questions i don't think that we should have is it right to hit richard spencer well that's that's the perfect example right which is again and again like no matter what I did, people wanted to make that into a moral question. Like, you know, you're saying it's not okay to hit Nazis. And my point is always, like, no, it's just like, it's irrelevant if you do. Like, like who cares? Like, it doesn't matter, you know? And there's just this, but there's just this attention suck to it. And it's the same thing with this conversation about widening sort of what we're willing to debate, which is, it's, I don't think that we should be reading more conservatives and listening to more people who are really outside of what we think and being more willing to debate it from some sort of like notion of fairness but because when you have eliminated all the other kinds of opinions from your intellectual world you become weak you know i mean like i it it is stunning to me how how many sort of people i know who think of themselves as political people who are just stunningly poor at making an argument because they've never had to right like they live in a intellectual world like on Twitter or on their campus or in their activist meetings where so many opinions that disagree with them have been declared impermissible that they've never had to go through the work of defending themselves in a really hostile environment you know and that's why I used to go to campus republican meetings when I was in college that's why I still if you can believe it, I still read the paper edition of National Review, and that's why I used to spend you know, hours in the comments of Megan McArdle's blog, right? Not because I enjoyed it, but because if you want to be good at this shit, if you want to be able to like actually rebut this stuff, you have to expose yourself to it over and over again. And right now, there's absolutely no cultural pressure to do that on the left. In fact, it's precisely the opposite. It's... It- it's the idea that if you so much as, like, argue with someone, you're somehow, like, giving your blessing to their argument. And I think this
1: is really important and touches on on what you actually were talking about earlier as well in terms of this idea to view identities in such a way that they are sort of pure. You can be the sum of multiple identities, but also you sort of, they're monolithic. And I, I think that's very problematic for, for not just reaching, for example, the, you know, the black union worker who you mentioned in Flint, but I, but i think you know you there was a piece that you linked earlier on on your um on your Facebook, which I shared, um, from was that from Viewpoint Mag, mm-hmm. um, which I thought was really beautiful. On this, and it reminded me actually of Kwame Apaya's, uh book Cosmopolitanism, where he talks about a certain thing, where a similar thing, where he basically says we all fail our own identities. Mm-hmm. So identities are very powerful in the ways we describe them, but we they're they're absolutely not monolithic because in each of the act of ourselves being an individual, and I'm paraphrasing here, he says it more eloquently. But we we fail that, but that failure is really important because that failure and rupture is how we sort of define ourselves as people, and that failure is also important. In a coalition, because if you are speaking to and treating, for example, African-Americans as monolithic, one of the things I liked about that piece was it, it, it note had this notion of tokenism because it's like, oh, well, this particular leader speaks for all African-Americans. And I think when you're in dialogue instead with people as individuals who, of course, have identities and identities are the intersections of multiple identities, their, their gender, their race, their sexual identity, etc what you arrive at i think in conversation and sometimes difficult conversation and and the listening to people who might disagree oh you know that guy from flint has somewhat retrograde opinions on gender okay well you know what that's probably someone we still need in the coalition right and like what are ways to talk to him and actually have a dialogue with him i i'm hesitant to blame as much university monoculture i mean i i, I know that that is a sort of flaw but i i think I really do want to return to the media and Twitter sphere as actually more of it. Because at the end of the day, there are still conservatives on campus and there are young Republicans clubs. I'm not sure that outside of the media where the media that publishes conspiracy theories, like the Breitbart side, I'm not sure on the other side that there are any people who are any more than like old school, low wicker, you know, Republicans. Like, and, and... I you know, I was having this discussion offline too. Like I, I worry about that. I, I mean I don't I don't want an affirmative action program for conservatives in the media. That's stupid. It's not what I'm talking about. But I I do think and I do think there has to be some better wrestling with having these conversations. And maybe it's just doing things like Chris Hayes is doing where you have a town hall, and because you don't have these people represented in the professional media class, what you do is you just take a politician to a place like West Virginia and you just let ordinary people talk. And maybe listening to ordinary people talk is sort of a good substitute because ordinary people, in their own, uh, will tell you actually like what they believe and what they believe will not will be in ways heterodox. And I think heterodox in an important way.
2: Yeah, I, I think part one thing you could talk about is just like economically, right? The media business has shrunk so much. I mean, the part of the reason why the media is such an urban enclave business now is you know once I mean like the Cincinnati Enquirer. Um, you know I'm sure there's people there who still do great work but this used to be one of the great newspapers of the United States and it has just been absolutely devastated economically to I think it's like eight pages now you know and they've just they've cut everything and so part of the problem is is once upon a time like if you were a newspaper that was in a non uniformly blue city you had to have that kind of engagement and now with You know, everything being, you know, even more consolidated than it ever was in New York, Los Angeles and D.C., it's just really hard to have that kind of structural incentive to pay attention to the other side. I mean, even the Tribune.
1: So Jerry and I grew up in San Diego, which is, you know, I think the seventh largest city in the United States. Something like that. And the San Diego Union Tribune always was a conservative paper. I remember reading it growing up, being super pissed at it. You know, I go home now, and it's funny. I'm like, oh, they're running New York Times wire service copy and AP stories. And it's just, I mean, this is like the seventh largest city in the United States, a paper that was super conservative. It was basically like reading a rewritten version of the Times that wasn't as good, except for the sports section. Mm-hmm. And, I mean, that's two million people who that's their their print source. Of course, the paper endorsed Hillary Clinton, which, I mean, it should have. But it was strange. It was it was very odd to read the trib and and basically feel like oh i um, you know this is the monoculture has even reached here
0: yeah i mean i don't i don't know that there's like a good there's a good answer to the problem of the vanishing local newspaper it's not it's, patch
1: <laughs> what's what's patch? sorry patch was this aol experiment which failed which was to try and like not pay people to write newspaper. Uh, oh local that sounds newspapers. awesome that's yeah, uh, yeah sign work. me up for that
0: yeah i don't i don't i don't know that what 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 exactly the solution is there? I was thinking more just in terms of the stuff that gets broadcast nationally, for example. And I think part of the problem is that with the consolidation and the the nationalization of political concerns and political debate, uh, you do you know you along with the same sort of separation that uh, occurred along uh, geographic lines, you get the same kind of separation along political lines. These are all kind of connected to each other, and that uh, you do you end up with this structure which basically incentivizes like people just yelling at each other if they ever have any sort anything that looks like a conversation at all and you know instead Mm. of instead of like arguing about like specific like content it it turns into like a point scoring exercise
1: because they don't know how right
0: well it's just it's just like on any divisive issue what you get is not like a series you don't get like a like anything that resembles like an actual Justification for one side or another side. Uh, you what you get is like just people dividing up. You know this is uh, this goes to a point that you've made before about how you know these questions that used to be just purely like not related to politics at all have become politicized. So questions of like which movie should win an Oscar or whatever um, stuff like that. So instead of instead of having like a, a, an argument about like a thing on the merits of the thing that you're discussing, what you have is just a like you go down the list and you're like, oh, which position am I supposed to hold on this specific topic? Like the, like the liberal position is this, the conservative position is this, like we're going to divide ourselves like along this line and uh, like, you know, shout at each other. And like, that's not, a productive way of, of talking about anything like that's not a productive disagreement uh, no matter who you're disagreeing with like whether you're disagreeing with somebody to your right or to your
1: left right is it okay for Democrats to root for the Patriots right this is like a, <laughs> a fucking stupid culture Yeah, it's a dumb it's a dumb argument it's just it makes no sense
2: and is St. Patrick's Day really an excuse for white supremacy <laughs> Right, I mean, that's, like, that's sure to move people in the hinterland onto our side. Let's take this thing you enjoy where you go out and have drinks with your coworkers and uh, dress festively in green. Let's remind you that you're bad for liking it, in fact, quite racist for liking it. I'm sure this is a growth opportunity for us in our movement,
0: yeah, I mean, before I was talking about something like NASCAR, which was my example of like something that has become really like pointlessly weaponized uh. Politically, which is like, you're like, oh, like, can a liberal enjoy NASCAR? Well, I don't know. I know plenty of liberals and leftists who love NASCAR and wrestling and all, all this stuff. And, like, th- they should not be politically salient, but they become politically salient because that's how the culture is divided.
2: You know, Michael Mustow from the, the uh, – Mustow or Mustow from the Village Voice mm-hmm. uh, said, you know, if Trump is not your president – uh, La La Land is not your best picture. And my friend Johnny Allen said on Twitter, he's like, yeah, that's right, because uh, if there's one thing that conservatives love, it's musicals about jazz in Los Angeles. You know, like, <laughs> right, yeah. Where everything they- has to get forced onto this blue-red binary, even if it's just ab- absurd on its face. you know. And
1: the thing that kills me, you know, my, my father-in-law works at a non-union plant in Indiana, in Terre Haute, Indiana. Um, and he's an electrician there, uh, works swing shift. That's not an easy job. Mm. He is surrounded by Trump voters, and we're not going to win a lot of his coworkers because they say some truly heinous racist shit. Mm. But like, my father-in-law is a good man, and he's not a racist at all. And the modern Democratic Party has very, very little to offer him. And I think about this sometimes in these debates, because, you know, it is funny what we're saying now, but it's also like, absurd. Like, What I want to give credit to Sanders for, and I think one of the reasons he's such a a powerful political force still in this country, is that it's not just policy. It's not just, oh, here are, although that's an important component. I think it's also having some measure of connection, which I don't think every politician can have, which is why I think we need a larger organizing movement, but a level of connection that says, I'm not excluding you from. Some joke that you're worried you're not in on. Mm. You know, I'm not talking around you, and and I think that one of the unfortunate facets that became part of the Clinton campaign, as much as I was a supporter of it, was the notion that it was for a number of different identities. But if you weren't in one of those identities, you were sort of sidelined by it. And I think that I mean it's the sort of same things like like this. You know, I mean if you uh, if you unabashedly love football. Um, and you're a blue collar guy. Like, can we take a break from culturally shitting on you for five seconds to try and get your vote? Um, we couldn't, and I, I think, and I, I think that's that's
2: sort of deeply, deeply problematic. I mean, there's two sides to this, right? There's pragmatic and there's moral, right? The pragmatic side is we've been getting our ass kicked for right. the last uh, fucking six years, right? Because we're not doing that. Like, um, it is, you know, Matt Iglesias, whatever disagreements, he said it, it's true. The Democratic Party is a smoking pile of rubble right now. You you cannot lose as badly as the Democrats have in a country like ours. You heard it here Twitter. Freddie
1: and Matt Iglesias are friends.
2: K-I-S-S-I-N-G. Um, <laughs> so that's like the pragmatic side, you know the the intellectual you know masters of liberalism like our intellectual class very explicitly said we don't need you anymore like you can read all these pieces, you know, in 2015 when people were feeling very confident and saying, you know, we don't need you know the dying white male class anymore. Well, what's that Chuck Schumer
1: quote? Right, he was like, "We're going to get two for every one we lose." Right. Like, yeah,
2: for every some, I can't
0: remember who the who they were going to lose, but they were they were going to pick up like two white Republican women or
1: in the suburbs of Philadelphia. That's and it, it, turns,
2: it turns out you didn't right, and so and when yeah. you when you explicitly say to people we don't need you anymore, then it it turns out they turn around and say fuck you too. And I, I really hate to break this to everyone, but in a country where, but something like thirty-eight percent of regular election after election, uh, voters are white men, it turns out that's an important demographic. I am sorry if that's problematic, but that that means that math is problematic, not me. Okay, that's that's math, and when you tell those people we don't need you anymore. Then they'll say, cool, we won't vote for you anymore. That's the sort of pragmatic sense. Like, I'm sorry, if you want to do good things and create more justice, then you have to be able to appeal to those people. And I know how frustrating that is. And I know that it's really fucked up to sort of say to people, you know, this class of people has always enjoyed more privilege and more power than they should. But we still have to pay attention to them. But again, it's math. It's not me, it's math. That's the pragmatic side.
1: But I think the moral side is actually important because I think one of the ways that you can get over the fact of, like, white supremacy is a reality in this country. Mm -hmm. So what does it mean to make allies among some of the people who have received the benefits of white supremacy? It can't just be like, you know... Here's a, here we're feeding into a Republican narrative, which is that benefits are about other people cutting you in line. It has to be like, how do we build better solidarity for you? Because the fact of the matter is there are a lot of people within that group of white men who, right, th- if they're 38% of the country, that's over 100 million people, right? right? And there are a lot of people there who deal with precarity. And there are a lot of people there who want to be heard and recognized as people and who I think we can build a, a bridge to. And I, I'm not, again, I'm not always sure... Like, I think it's more left of here. We can argue about how far it is. I mean, you know, whether it's Scandinavian country or further left or whatever. But, like, the issue, I think, is that you don't have to resign yourself to, oh, if I appeal to the votes of white men, I'm somehow ignoring white supremacy. I think there's real solidarity to be built that is based on, I think, trying to oppose that antagonism. And this is actually, like, one of the things I didn't—there was this Zach Beauchamp piece, um, which then got got taken down by a variety of people— But I mean, I think one of the complications of it is you can agree that diversity is in fact a dividing line for many people in the country, and I think there's good social science data to suggest that it is, but that doesn't mean you have to either give up on diversity or give up on left economics. I think what that means is you have to find a way, and maybe, again, I think this is where the moral component is, I think you're maybe morally obliged to try and find a way to make that bridge work, to to try and see what are the points on which... You can listen and find points of common interest and, and try and build the build
2: those bridges. I mean, the the moral. I would put the moral case very simply, which is that the basic left pr- proposition is that everyone matters, right? And I know that that it, again that that makes people's hair stand on end because they say, well, we're trying to insist that women matter, that Black people matter, that trans lives matter, and I understand that in any kind of morally universal framework, right? When there are these historical uh, inequalities, you will necessarily devote a lot of time to those inequalities. So if you're trying to achieve true moral universalism in a country that is riven with racism like our, ours is, your movement will necessarily be anti-racist. If you're trying to achieve, achieve moral universalism in a country that's as sexist as ours is, and it is, it's filled with misogyny and, and gender inequality, then your movement will necessarily be Uh, Feminist, And on and on. Of course, we're going to have to devote an enormous amount of our interest and our efforts to solving these traditional inequalities. But there's been, you know, this used to be a conservative stereotype, and I just don't think it is anymore, which is a sort of sense of, like, fuck you to the winners. And, like I said, pragmatically, that hasn't worked out for us. In fact, it's worked out terribly. But also morally. Everybody has to be able to get pulled up. I mean, the basic idea here, right, is that unless things are better for everyone, then they're not worth pursuing. And the opposite of that is conservatism, right? To say that some people deserve to be economically miserated is conservatism. And I think we just have to go, back to go back to our roots, right? Go back to the civil rights movement. You know, the stuff that I'm saying now some people will represent as reactionary, go back and look at the civil rights movement and the rhetoric that they used then, right? Go back to the American socialist movement. Like there's all kinds of historical analogs for this sort of thing. We you know there's absolutely no contradiction between paying attention to economic immiseration of people from traditionally uh, empowered groups and solving the problems of the mar- traditionally marginalized. That. Is not going to be easy. In fact, it's going to be very, very hard to do both. But the idea that you can only do one or the other, to me, is just a non starter. And again, like, that's what conservatives say, right? Like, it's conservatives who say it's okay if some people advance and some people don't. And I'm not a conservative.
0: Yeah, there was a, uh, I think her name was Jennifer Palmieri. Is that, nah. is that right? Yeah. yeah. She appeared on, I can't remember which uh, network it was, but I think maybe either CNN or MSNBC. And she's, you know, she said something like, uh, like, oh, you know, is about identity now. And I was just like, okay, well, you know, I mean, be that as it may, but being like not having money, that's as much, you know, being poor is as much part of an, your identity as anything else is, right? Like you experience that extremely directly. And to say that people don't, care about that it's just like it's bizarre it's not even like not even misguided it's just kind of like you you look like an alien coming from another planet like people need those things right they need they need to have money to buy stuff and like that if you don't have that you're you're miserable so it just it's just very strange to see somebody who like ostensibly you know wants to you would think it would be interested in winning and would be interested in sort of like playing that game, even on a cynical level, just like
1: totally refuse to even consider that as a possibility. I, I find that just really bizarre. And I think, I mean, it's easy to say Jennifer Palmieri is a bad person. I don't, well, I don't think I'm she's not, a bad I don't know person. if she's a bad person. No, 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 like, no I I know I'm know not, not she she saying you were. I, I just think that just demonstrates how out of touch she is. You know, one of the things that... Clinton did to her credit was she always had these listening tours where she would go and actually talk to constituents especially in upstate New York. That's how for example she was on the opioid crisis very early and that was a a key sort of platform plank for her. And what's frustrating about many people like Palmieri who again I think is a probably a good person, is that the only way you can make that sort of comment is if you haven't actually sat and talked and listened to people. But, and I think people in the political class and media class need to do that more.
0: But but I think the problem is bigger than just like, right, it's not about Jennifer Palmieri as an individual. It's about uh, asking the question of like, how do, we, how do we come to a point where a representative of the party that is allegedly, you know, the party of the left, uh, to whatever degree, is going on allegedly to television. the party of the left to whatever degree trademark <laughs> well you know um, uh, th- that she's going on national television and saying this like that's that's the problem it's not like that Jennifer Palmieri is bad or good individually it's that she's representative of like the structure that
1: brought us to this point so that's yeah.
0: the real problem not like her specifically
1: so, I mean, I guess the, the lesson's pretty clear. We need to, um, what was the word under the Soviet Union? It, it Was it eradicate the top classes? We need to eradicate all of the democratic leadership, uh, the, the wealth and power structures in this country. That's right. Unify the local parties. Well, Not necessarily in that order. Small probably, agenda. Uh, yeah. No, I mean, I feel like this is like many of our episodes sort of, um, you know, I think winds into a difficult conclusion, which is there's a lot of hard work to be done. I think barring a very charismatic leader, what this requires is a lot of ground-up work, some of it cultural, although I think more of it um, doing the work of trying to make the organizations, the Democratic Party, look more like what what we want it to be.
0: You know, if the goal is to sort of make the party more responsive to uh, to its base and to the people who actually bring out the votes, I think that you have to, yes, you have to form these cross-cutting structures and you have, but you also have to be like, you have to send people into leadership positions who are going to advocate for your, like for, for, for those goals. Right. So you, it, it can't just be enough to win like local elections, although you start by winning local elections, but you also, Get your people onto, uh, you know, local party machines, uh, local structures, get them into places where they can vote for, uh, you know, nominees to the party conventions and so on and so forth. Right. That's that's how you create structures that are going to be responsive to you is if they actually depend on that base for their vote. Yeah. And if it and if and I personally think that if it, that means you know, running people in the primaries who are, um, you know, far, far to the left and, uh, and, you know, punishing uh, people, then that's what it's going to have to be. Because unless the people at the top, unless they are afraid for their jobs, uh, it's going to be real difficult to get them to change because the incentives are all structured
1: against it. Primary mansion. Well, um, that's episode 1.8. So like to thank all of our listeners and Thank Jerry and especially Freddie yeah. for joining Thank us. Thank you and for uh,
2: for coming. Yeah, thanks for having me.
1: And as always, our talented sound engineer, Greg Young. Join us for episode 1.9 in two weeks when we talk about my favorite pet theory, APWL, or Autarchic Patriarchal White Labor. Thanks for listening, signers.